0: Good morning, Uh, if you're new, my name is Todd, I'm one of the elders here, and uh, this morning our scripture reading is going to be from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Jesus Christ, that you are enriched in him in every way, in all speech, and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack in any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks, Todd. I don't know if you guys caught it or not. But in that passage said that somebody will strengthen us until the day. I don't know if you caught who it was, but it wasn't us. It wasn't us. God is faithful. Doesn't rest on our shoulders. This is the um this is the the thought I had going into this short one off topical series that Mike has started. Um that one time when he likes catchy phrases. Um, and I was thinking about how I could add to this and I thought what about that one time when Mike taught a youth camp because <laughs> we're about to go to youth camp and specifically it's it's actually the, the location we're going is the place I met Mike first well okay not entirely well kind of true It's the first place I served with Mike. I'll say that first uh, first place I served with Mike in a youth capacity Um, for those of you who know me a little bit I was homeschooled off grid in the boonies total redneck hillbilly um, through and through and uh, my parents didn't believe in youth group that was where kids went to play um, and we were there we weren't going to be there to do that we were going to be wherever we were going to be we were going to be learning (laughs) so I was not allowed to go to youth group so when Mike asked me hey you want to go to youth camp and help out it's rather a shocking thing. And yet it started something incredible. And, and so as we're reflecting on stories, although we're reflecting, reflecting on scriptural stories, I wanted to reflect on the scriptural passage he pulled up, the effect that it had on the youth kids while we were there, and the effect that it ultimately had on myself and, and many of the leaders that you see around this church today um, who serve in, in various different ways today. Um, a lot of us were there a lot of us were there at that camp and a lot of us started down the road that would lead us to stepping out uh, to serve downtown Court d'Alene with our lives in the name of Jesus. So we're going to look at Hebrews 6 because that's the passage he spoke on. Um, and so this is specifically that one time when Mike taught Hebrews 6 at a youth camp. Now he actually he actually did a bunch of youth camps um, a whole a whole load of them before I was around and then after I was around, um, but we're going to talk specifically about the one that brought me into ministry with Mike and a large portion of this staff. So the year was 2017, campground Twin Low. As I said, yes, that is the same Twin Low we are finally going back to. This will be the first time we've been back there. Um, We're going back this year, which I'm really excited about because this is also Transform Ministries first youth camp ever. Um, We planted in the midst of COVID. And um, so we didn't have opportunity for youth camps because they told us we could only bring 10 people. And I have 14 leaders so that (laughs) wasn't going to work. I needed more than 10 people. So. um, So, yeah. uh, I was serving in the sound team at the time working at a place called Cardinal Health in Spokane Valley Um, the work was reasonably rewarding it was in the medical field it it wasn't it wasn't completely useless work. it it had value to people's lives and yet I found that I was oddly dissatisfied oddly dissatisfied with what I was doing and not in the not in the typical way of, of everyone hates their job right not in the typical way of going to work as a grind um, it, it's, it's not that sense. I was oddly dissatisfied in that I felt unfulfilled in a spiritual sense. I felt very unfulfilled in a spiritual sense. Um, myself and my closest friend at the time, um, well, he's still like, Tim, if you're listening, you're still my closest, I swear, but, <laughs> but closest friend He was working in an auto body. He was dissatisfied with what he was doing. I was working in a medical field. I was dissatisfied with what I was doing. And we both came to the conclusion. Nobody in our generation talks to each other. We talk to each other virtually online, but we don't talk face to face very often, except one spot, one spot in America. You want to have a conversation with somebody. It's almost always the same thing for my parents generation. It was, Hey, would you like to grab lunch with my generation? cup of coffee. Specifically what it was. And so I decided in that moment, hey, Tim, I know nothing about coffee. You know nothing about coffee. Neither of us have ever run a business. You want to start a coffee shop? (laughs) That's the heart of the millennial, all the passion, none of the discipline. It's my generation. And so we actually talked about this and that was our heart was like, we got to do something to where conversation is, is actually the primary focus. We want to see relationship. We are tired of not having true fellowship with our fellow believers. It is, it is driving us crazy being isolated in the midst of a group of people. It feels wrong. And so it was driving us nuts. And so we finally decided this is what we're going to do. You know, I think this is what God's calling us to. And then uh, Tim asked the fatal words, what would it take for us to drop this dream? What's the what is there one thing even that would stop us from doing this? And I uttered I uttered, well, if somehow one of us got called into ministry and God was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) So here I am. We're planning on doing the shop. I'm sitting in service, but in that service, this is back at Rafterm where I came from with Mike Jacobs. Sitting in that service I'm praying Lord I know like I feel like you've got me on this course maybe Um, would you confirm that to me what am I supposed to be doing what am I supposed to be doing and then finally the words came into my head of Lord if you open a door I'll walk through it if you open a door I'll walk through it. I want to be available for whatever you would have if you open a door I would walk through it immediately after the worship set Mike came up to me and asked if I would help with a youth camp I had never done before on my anniversary that's when he wanted to do this youth camp on my wedding anniversary (laughs) everything in my mind said no way (laughs) not a chance Uh, my wife will kill me and um, I've never been to a youth group Um, if you hadn't noticed Mike I'm a little bit odd I'm a little bit weird like why do you want me there and he was like, no, I need, a, I need another guy, a leader who I can trust, and and you're trustworthy, and like, you've been background checked already, you're serving, like, it, it would be, <laughs> it's convenient. <laughs> 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 and so I said yes, because I felt like God immediately opened that door because I asked him. Um, I felt that it was 100% God opening a door, and it was my responsibility to either honor my word to the Lord, or... Um, or to run and hide. And so I honored the Lord. I went to camp, and and Hebrews 6 is what Mike was teaching on. Throughout this series, I think it was was either three or four kids that year gave their hearts to the Lord. Um, We had probably half a dozen recommitments. And it was one singular message throughout the whole week that captured these kids' hearts, captured these kids' minds. And it was the singular act of these kids' hearts being captured and these kids' mind being captured that caused a whole leadership team to say, I have to keep doing this. I have to. And this was that passage. The main point of the sermon that we'll be looking at again today, the first time in, what, five years, was that our Savior is a steadfast anchor. This is a scriptural truth. He is a, he is, our hope is in Jesus, who is a steadfast anchor, this immovable, steadfast anchor. This is a scriptural truth and is therefore altogether reliable, believable, trustworthy. And it is this fact that God is a steadfast anchor it had the profound effect on the kids at camp as well as myself. To understand what a steadfast savior is, because that's what if Jesus is our savior and he's this anchor, then a steadfast savior would be another way to say this. It might be helpful to first ask a question. What is a steadfast defenseman in sports? A defenseman who is really good at defending. Makes sense, right? Is a defenseman who's really, really good at defending. So there it's very plain to see a steadfast savior is someone who is really, really good at saving. Tremendously, all-powerfully good at saving, redeeming, granting value to that which had none. That's what Jesus is. Today, I want to challenge us by asking this question. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that he is really, really good at saving that he is actually a firm anchor? Or do we think we're holding on also? Are we doing part of this? What happens to us when we really believe that Jesus is really, really good at saving? What happens? And what happens to those around us? These are the things I want to keep in mind as we're going through. So let's dive in. Hebrews 6. We're going to start in verse 13. This is a very, um, if, uh, if you know this passage well, you know it's a very controversial passage in the first half, um, which is why I steered clear of that. No, kidding. Not really, but... <laughs> Very controversial first half of the of uh, the chapter Um, and um, we're not going to dive into that. But I would love to sit down and talk with anybody afterwards who has questions about the first half. Um, We're going to focus on the fact and the scriptural fact that Jesus is our hope. He is a steadfast anchor. So in verse 13 says for when God made a promise to Abraham. Since he had no one greater to swear by. He swore by himself. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. This is God speaking to Abraham. This is his promise, and he promises it on himself, because there was nobody, no thing, no person, no, nothing at all that could be higher than himself. So this was the highest securing promise. This was the most stable promise that God could give to Abraham. There is no reason why this shouldn't be the most confidence-boosting promise that God could give to Abraham. Nothing greater to swear by. Absolutely no higher person exists. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you the highest guarantee that I'm able to give the strongest assurance that exists in all the universe. And so why would he do that? Think about it. Does it benefit God to make a promise to someone? Is God capable of performing his blessing without granting assurance? Does he have to assure us things or can he just do it? So why do it? Is God capable of blessing us without us being informed? Abraham isn't a lone office, right? He wasn't a lone office. He didn't have anything over God. God did not owe Abraham anything. So why promise it to him? Put ourselves in Abraham's shoes. We owe, God owes us nothing whatsoever. So why does he promise us things? To answer that question, let me ask you this. And if you're not a parent, put yourself in parent's shoes. Why do we promise our kids things? Why do we promise ourselves to our spouse with a ring? Why do we do that? If I can catch Dimitri, who, that's my son, by the way, my one-year-old. If I can catch Dimitri when he jumps off of something high without promising him, why promise him at all? Why do I need to tell him, yes, you can jump, I have you, don't worry, I've got you, I'll take care of you. Why do I have to tell him that? Is that for me? Or is that for him? If I can stay faithful to my wife without a ring, why wear it at all? If I can protect myself, keep myself faithful to her forever, even if I don't have a ring on, why wear it? I tell Dimitri that I can catch him and will catch him because I want him to put his absolute all into the jump. I want him to put everything he has, his full confidence into that leap, that jump. Because with confidence comes a much better jump. And I want him to learn the motor skills. I want him to have that confidence because confidence builds skill. Confidence builds relationship and rapport between himself and myself. I tell my wife that I will stay with her until death so that she will have the confidence to dedicate herself to our house with the full assurance that I'm there no matter what, and she does the same for me. She does the exact same thing for me. We both know that we can dig in and spend our lives building something together. I can do that with her. She's promised herself to me. I can spend my time dedicated to building a life with her. That's where Demetri came from, by the way, that confidence. He was born out of our confidence in each other. I looked at my wife and I said, yes. I completely believe in starting a family with you. I completely believe in that. Not only do I have the faith that you'll be a good mother, I want to raise a family with you. It's not just a faith thing. There's a desire there. I don't just have faith that she can do it. I want to do it with her. And so I give her that confidence with this ring, with that promise. I give my son that confidence so that he can jump confidence builds openness and openness builds relationships. I'm going to say that twice confidence builds openness when you are confident you can be open and openness. Once you're open that builds relationships. We know this marriage counseling. What is it all about getting people to talk communicate, right? I say marriage counseling any counseling. It's all about getting the other person to be open and talk. And if there's confidence there that, yes, this is a trustworthy, safe person that I can be open with, then you start being open with them, and that openness leads to a better relationship, a deeper relationship. Confidence builds openness. Openness builds relationships. God wants every one of us confident, you feel confident today i kind of feel confident right now but i'll tell you this week there was at least three times where i was like why am i doing this i didn't go to seminary (laughs) why am i here so many times i asked myself that and god had to gently rebuke me i called you calm down and jump I promise my wife and kids things because I want to build the kind of faith in each other to make way for openness with each other so that we might grow in our love for one another. Simply put, we promise things to each other because we love each other enough to want to give the kind of confidence that leads to openness. And I'll give you a little... Challenge here. This is not what the passage is talking about. It's not talking about marriages, but we see we can understand our marriage better by the way God treats us. There's, that's, there's a reason why there's a picture there. If your marriage does not have openness, ask yourself, is there confidence? If there's not confidence, ask yourself, why not? It's an encouragement I have to level up myself on a regular basis. So continuing on verse 15, he says, and so after waiting patiently, God has, has given this promise to Abraham. He's, he's attempted to give him confidence, but we'll see that doesn't necessarily grant confidence, but he has attempted to give Abraham confidence. He says, and so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. He, sure enough, he got it. He obtained it. God was true to his word for people swear by something greater themselves and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. No matter how loving the promise is, the promise is only as strong as the promise giver, right? And so people will promise upon bigger things. I swear on my mother's name. Don't do that, by the way. But you'll hear people say that. Look for something bigger. I would never disgrace my mother. So I'm being honest. Now, God had nothing higher to give than himself. But I want to ask you, think of it this way. There it's not that he had nothing higher to give, so he gave what he could. He gave everything. The creator of the universe, his promise is so solid, so profoundly steadfast, that if fully understood God's character, his inability to lie, his love for his people, his intelligent design over creation, if fully understood all those elements, God telling Abraham would instantly radically change Abraham forever. If he fully understood all of that, God could tell you anything like stab your son with a knife and he'll be okay. And somebody like Abraham might do that. Which by the way, he tried and God stopped him. (laughs) If you're not a believer and you're like, what's going on with that story? See me after. We'll talk about it. It's It's fun stuff. It's fun stuff. Goats died instead. Don't worry. But that confidence should be superseding over everything. He didn't ask Abraham to guarantee his own blessing. Abraham would be incapable of guaranteeing his own blessing. Notice something about Abraham's blessing here. Most of it, in fact, the, I would say um, the majority of it, the greatly multiply part at least, will happen after he dies. Abraham doesn't get to physically see The blessing, he doesn't get to see it all. Most of it happens after he dies. Now we have the nation of Israel. We understand that it it was fulfilled and God was good. and, And Abraham was indeed blessed tremendously for generations. Abraham didn't get to see that. The blessing came after he dies. It's really hard to believe in something that's going to happen after we die. There's something uniquely difficult about us having faith and trusting in something that's going to happen when we can no longer control the thing. Because after we're dead, there's nothing we can do about it. And God grants this great promise to him that should be so securing. Continuing on, verse 17 says, because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise... He guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope of God set before us. Strong encouragement. God desires that we would be so encouraged, so strengthened, so fortified that we would have nothing to do except just firmly seize what he has put before us. That there would be no fear, no second guessing, no regrets. If we are certain that God has put it there for us, there should be no fear, no word of any man or any religion or any ideal should be able to tarnish that because it came from God almighty who is perfect this promise is given for the encouragement of those who call Jesus savior but let's slow down for a moment the strength of the encouragement relies on one thing the strength of the encouragement okay he is guaranteed he said here here's the promise this is sound, this is steadfast, this is true, this is sure. That can be 100% sure, true, and correct, and you can still not be encouraged. And why is that? The determining factor in how much encouragement we get from God's promises is our own faith that God is who he says he is, can do what he says he can do, and fulfills what what he promises telling somebody who doesn't believe God at all that God has this promise for them will not encourage them whatsoever the strength of the encouragement is dependent on how much you believe God is who he says he is and how much faith you actually have in his word the hope is there but it has to be seized What does the writer mean by this? Ultimately, the amount of confidence will come down to your belief in the promise giver. A promise is much like a rope. We can visualize it this way if this is helpful climbing rope. By the way, I had to search this up because I'm not a climber, um, but I had to look this up. Climbing rope is not rated in hundreds of pounds as I assumed it probably would have been. It's actually rated in thousands of pounds. Climbing rope, the the lowest grade official climbing rope um, was something like 1,700 pounds it could hold. Crazy, so much. And like a single or a double rope was like 2,000-something pounds. Tremendous. That's a lot of weight. So when an instructor looks at an 80-pound middle schooler and says, that will hold you. (laughs) Allow it to hold you. Just allow it to hold you. It's going to just trust it. It's going to hold you. He is very, very, very correct, right? That instructor is correct. So why is the middle schooler still holding on to the wall for dear life? Better yet, why are we? Why are we hanging on to fear around God's promises for dear life? Maybe some of you in here don't struggle with this, but I've... Very rarely ever got to know somebody and found out that they didn't have some sort of fear around God's promises, whether it was salvation or God's calling on their lives or his faithfulness. Very rare. We struggle with this. There's so much climbing that we could be doing if we trust the rope. But we're so, so stuck on that wall, checking over and over again. Checking the rope, like, ah, is there a fray? Is there a tear? Is it good? Am I clipped? Looking so hard for any kind of weakness, any kind of weakness. Is there something I'm missing about God? Is there something I'm actually supposed to be doing that I'm not doing? Is he really going to be faithful to me when I thought that thought did that thing? God is not a man made rope. If you're a climber, check your rope. (laughs) It's a man made rope. Check your rope. God is not a man made rope. There are no frayed strands anywhere. And it can hold a whole lot more than 1,700 pounds. Allow Him to hold you and start climbing. Start climbing. The writer goes on to say, and I say writer because we don't fully know who wrote Hebrews. There are a few strong theories, but no definitive proof. And the writer themselves does not say so. The writer continues and says exactly what that confidence should lead to. He says in verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. For the soul. Notice what it is for. We have this hope this hope is an anchor specifically for something an anchor is typically to hold a ship in place during a storm. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. That eternal little piece of you. is going to go on forever. Firm and secure he says it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain all the way behind the curtain and then notice how he does it. Jesus has entered in verse 20 there on our behalf as a forerunner, a forerunner. He entered in behind the curtain into God's presence as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is finally he just finally comes out and says it, Jesus. Jesus has entered the inner sanctuary. No more guesses about what the anchor is. No more guesses about what the hope is. The writer looks at the church in the day and he just says, Jesus is your anchor. And however much you think Jesus is able to save, that's how much confidence you're going to have. He is the one who entered Behind the curtain, he is the hope that anchors our souls. He is the rope that is strong enough to hold us. We are not the rope. Our performance is not what secures the anchor. Scripture right here in front of our faces says that Jesus is the one that secures our souls. Jesus is the one. And Notice that he entered as a forerunner. Funny thing about forerunners, they run before something or someone. A forerunner in the the word actually used for forerunner um, referred to uh, a military sense, someone who would go do reconnaissance, and specifically they were going to go do reconnaissance so that the troops behind them would be able to have safe passage through with all the information, all the knowledge, all the security, all the confidence available to them. Jesus ran first so that we might follow after. That was his goal. That was his intention. The curtain, if you're not familiar with the curtain, the curtain was a veil within the temple, separated the people, you and I, from the Holy of Holies, presence of God, and I want you to think about the church that this, w- this letter would have been written to. Some people think this was a sermon that was transcribed. Some people think it was a letter, regardless of what it was. The church this was given to would have included a whole lot of uh, Jewish believers. Judea- J- Jews who came out of Judaism into Christianity. I want you to understand the significance of the curtain for them. That curtain, that veil was the place that only a priest could go. If you were to enter behind that curtain, you would actually drop dead in the presence of the Lord if you were not supposed to be in there. The idea of somebody going behind the curtain was already groundbreaking for them, aside from priests. But the word forerunner, would have been revolutionary for them. What do you mean, forerunner behind the curtain? What do you mean somebody's going to go in and then others are going to follow behind the priest into the presence of God? What do you mean, forerunner? This would have struck the church at that time squarely between the eyes they themselves not some holy priest they themselves have been invited into the presence of god himself which should strike you dead should absolutely strike you dead that's the purpose of it he wanted them to feel it and understand you have been invited in to the presence of god because of the work jesus did Every single one of us, the truth is we are not worthy to enter the presence of God. But by one thing, that a forerunner went forward first, made the way, paid the ultimate sacrifice in order that we might enter in. At the beginning, I talked about the effect of believing that Jesus really is good at saving the effect that it had on a handful of kids that week, all those years ago was that they cried out to God and asked him to be their steadfast hope. This is a four week series condensed into 30 minutes. (laughs) So I didn't get to go into total depravity of the human condition. I didn't get to go into our desperate need for a savior. All we've had time to do here today is just say that Scripture itself, because I believe most people in this room are firm believers, Scripture itself, inspired by God, has told us that Jesus is really, really, really good at saving. And you have nothing to fear because it's not you holding your salvation. It never was. Jesus, the perfect Sacrifice, the perfectioner of our faith is the one who's holding you. And that is a strong, steadfast rope. The effect that it had on my life at that time was I was 27 years old. I took that confidence and put it into action. Seeing a bunch of kids get really, really excited about the fact that there was somehow some kind of steadfast hope inspired me to want to jump in specifically to that. And the funny thing is, I didn't have to ask. Mike came and told me, hey, I think you should be a youth pastor. (laughs) After freaking out, I realized, well, he's right, I've been feeling this. You see, because when we understand the steadfast hope that we've been given, we are supposed to exude confidence to a dying world around us. We are supposed to then share that steadfast security with the world around us. We as believers are intended to get to the point where we recognize I am saved because of Jesus. So I want to do something about it. I want to be part of his kingdom. I want to take a step forward. This passage wasn't about action, but it had that effect had effect on a whole leadership team. I want to take action. Now that I'm, I'm confident, I'm secure, I know God has me. It's time to get to work. It's time to start climbing. That's the conclusion we came to. No, that wasn't the last time I checked the rope. But the funny thing about climbing is that once you get some momentum going, you start to trust the rope a whole lot more and more and more. Those first steps are the scariest, but you get that momentum and it becomes very clear that that's a good rope. Worship team, you can come on up as we're closing. Today we're going to share in communion. Um, If there are any here who aren't believers, what communion is in a a church is um, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us. We do it in remembrance of him, something he has called us to remember. And um, I just want to encourage you: if you if you've never asked God into your life, um, communion wasn't intended for you, um, and so you can just let the plate pass on by. It's not weird; nobody's gonna, nobody cares. Um, this is just something personal we do for um, our relationship with with our God and Savior. Remembering what he did for us creates a special bond of love. And it it reminds us that we are to share specifically in his walk, which includes the suffering, the fellowship. It reminds us how we got saved and where we're going. It's the purpose of it. I want to again um, encourage you guys. I'm I'm really bad at meeting new people. Um, I enjoy people. I'm just... I don't know, never been the outgoing guy. And there's a lot more to this chapter than just the passage we've covered today, a, a reference that's very controversial, especially at the top half. Calvinists and Arminians have been debating over this passage for longer than I've been alive. So there's a lot more to be covered. And um, if there's anyone in here who feels like they have more questions regarding Hebrew 6, or really any other passage, but if you'd like to sit down and chat with somebody, um, There's like a little coffee shop right down, block and a half, makes great coffee. And I'd love to meet up with with anybody for a cup of coffee, just to talk scripture. More of that in my life, please. If anybody has any more questions, I encourage you to reach out to me afterwards. I'd, I'd love to sit down and chat about anything. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are the steadfast anchor. You didn't ask us to do it knowing that we could not do it on our own, you provided. Lord, we can't fully comprehend or understand what it would be like to look at our son, who is absolutely perfect, who is asking us if there was any way to remove the cup and have to tell our son to keep going. We recognize your love for us. as God, I just confess there's times when I think of Jesus as the as loving part of the Trinity and, and I think of you as the harsher. And it's so not true. I don't know that kind of sacrifice to give up my son. You are so, so good. Such a good father. And Jesus, this this Sunday morning, it is our honor, our joy, our pleasure to remember you and honor you for everything that you are, everything that you did, and everything that you're calling us to. We praise you and we worship you as the one true holy God, the one and only Savior that was prophesied. You came and you did it. And it was so, so costly. Brother you'd be honored by our worship this morning. Amen.